So this evening, as you can see, I want to look at what is known as a 10 ox herding picture. And it's a series of 10 pictures of, it's a Zen painting. You have, it started in the 12th century. And you have images and you have a title that go with it and generally you have poems that go with it. But I won't recite poetry tonight. And what is interesting about this series of pictures is that actually it is a meditative path in drawings, painted. And so it's kind of like an, kind of images of the meditative path. So I like to go through each image. And so we go, kind of, we, kind of, we don't go, we go kind of uh, from here to there, then we kind of again like this. But I'll explain a little the picture, it'll become clear. So the first one is called Searching for the Ox. And you see the little ox herder, and he's kind of looking. You know, he's kind of flitting here and there, looking. And in a way, why is he looking? Because he feels, she feels, something is missing. And to me, this, this picture is in a way a picture, an image of when we in a way, start on the path. Actually, the beginning of the path starts in this feeling that something is missing or that we want to look beyond our limits or that there is some suffering. So again, we want to do something. So in a way, there is this movement. Instead of being static and in a way staying where we are, doing what we do, there is this movement, this kind of impulse to look. And I think that's what that picture represents. And I can remember for myself, from the age of 11, I wanted to go. I wanted to travel. I wanted to go somewhere. <laughs> and I did not go because I thought my parents would worry if I just disappeared, <laughs> age 11. So I waited to be 18 to do that. But I really, there was something, something that wanted making me move, wanting to move, to go. Or if I think of a friend of mine who became a nun, a Buddhist nun, when she was 53. So up to that time, until 53 years old, she came from a very cultured, musical family in Switzerland. Her father was very famous. And, so, and in a way, you could say she had it all in her life. Again, she felt something was missing. And so she left her life in Switzerland and she went to Dharamsala and became a nun and lived in a really poor hut for 10 years. So it, it can happen at any time, that feeling that something is missing. Or if I think of another friend of mine who also is a nun and she was a very kind of relatively known artist in France among the, the surreal Alice, she knew Breton, she knew all these people. And also she had a lot of suffering in her life. And what is interesting is that it's her son who became a Buddhist monk first. And as in a way her suffering accumulated, then she thought, oh, maybe there, there is something. And she also became a Buddhist nun. Then there is a second picture and you see, the little oxerder has seen footprints. It's called seeing the footprints. So suddenly, he sees footprints. He sees traces. So in a way, the ox is somewhere. And I think is that in a way, when we start to find traces of what could fit, what is missing, what could help us in a way, and this is something spiritual. So we might find kind of some traces in certain ideas, in certain books, or in poetry. I remember when I was 18, when I, I heard this poem, and it said, the swallow flew through the sky. They leave no traces. The shadows of the bamboo sweep the stairs. No dust is stirred. And I thought, ah, 
<laughs> you know, and so you kind of you read this thing and you feel oh, you know, like you feel ah, there is something you don't really understand it, but you feel ah, there is something there for me. And so, in a way, for me, I could say possibly the, the, that kind of uh, uh, that movement was when I was young. I wanted to save the world. I was an anarchist and was very politically kind of uh, interested, engaged, and things like that. And then when I was 18, um, I left home and I went with a group of people. And one was slightly interested in meditation. So I kind of, I kind of took a book he was reading and I kind of started to read it, just like that. I mean, why not? Not much to do. So I was reading this book, and actually it was a Dhammapada. Stephen mentioned that book. And in it, at one point, it said, before you want to change others, you should change yourself first. And I thought, yeah. I mean, if I cannot change myself, how am I going to change the world? I thought this is really a good point. And in a way, just reading that sentence, in a way, changed my life because I dropped politics and then got interested in meditation. So in a way, this is a moment where there is this shift, I would say, to the spiritual, to something kind of a a dimension that we have possibly not met before or not met in that way. But what we have also to see about the traces is are they old or new? Are they relevant or not? Because if you remember the story I told about me and the book of Krishnamurti, I mean, it was very spiritual, but I couldn't do anything with it. (laughs) So in a way, the the, the trace was there, but in a way, the relevance, in a way, did not work. And then there is a next picture, and I love that one, Mm -hmm. because you see the oxerda, it's called seeing the ox tail. Actually, it's seeing the bottom of the ox. And so you kind of suddenly just see the bottom with the tail among the bushes. So he sees something. He knows the ox is there. And to me, it's when we try to go beyond words and we decide to do something about this spiritual stuff. We really decide to kind of do something, to really practice something. And then we encounter so many different paths so many different methods. So you kind of, you know, it's kind of like in the picture, you see kind of the oxtail here, the oxtail there. It's kind of, there is kind of, you know, you just have glimpses. And I think for myself, is when I was 18 and so decided to kind of do something kind of spiritual. And uh, the first thing I tried was uh, Sufi chanting. That did not work because I am not the devotional type. So I kind of gave up this after one evening. <laughs> then, then, then I, um, all my friends were into a rashnish. So then I went to do hyperventilating naked. And, and I did this for a week. And I was not convinced. It did not seem to be what I wanted to do. So then... I took up Taoism by correspondence. (laughs) And then the idea was to lie on a bed, and then I had to imagine myself going up to the corner of the ceiling. (laughs) And I tried, I tried, and I never got there. So I gave that up. And then, in a way, it's kind of so you're looking. You're looking for something. You're really trying to find something. And then, you know, I got interested in Buddhism. So in a way, finally, you find the tradition, you feel something for it. seems to make sense. It seems to be relevant. And for myself, I was interested in, the, in Buddhism. You know, I thought, yeah, there is something there. But then again, you don't just have one tradition. You have many different. You have the Theravada. You have the Tibetan tradition. There is a Zen tradition. And I, I felt there was something more with the Zen but at that time, what I encountered was uh, the Tibetan Buddhism. But again, I thought it was nice, but for some reason, it did not catch my heart. There was little thing that was written I did not agree with. 
and I won't tell you what they were. <laughs> and, and this was more to do with politics, actually. And so I thought, no, if they do this, I am not going to go with them. So at kind of the level, there was a little thing that really kind of did not work there for me. Then I went to Thailand. And in Thailand, I thought, you know, yeah, the practice was quite nice towards the breath, but I thought the way, you know, in the monastery there were we women was a bit weird. So I thought, no, that's not really for me. <laughs> and then I ended up in Korea. And for some reason, in a way, Korea fitted me. Because I ended up in Korea, it was a mistake in a plane ticket. I was not going to Korea. I was, I was going to Japan. <laughs> and, and they put Seoul on my ticket. And then by accident, I met a Korean monk. He said, there is meditation there. Yeah, yeah go there. And so I thought, well, I have enough money to get there for a month. So I went there for a month. And I stayed 10 years. Wow. And it's the best thing I ever did. And because something resonated in a way, one has to see it's kind of it's not a question of just the technique of the meditation. It's not a question of just the culture. It's in a way the whole thing that actually up to a point it fit. So you feel comfortable enough that in a way you want to do it. So then there is a next picture, and it's called catching the ox. So you see the ox herder has caught the ox, but the ox doesn't want to be caught. And so you see it's so much energy in this picture. I think, in a way, this is the most powerful of the picture because it's very kind of powerful. You see the energy it requires. And to me, this is, in a way, the, 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 the turning point in the practice when you really decide that you're really going to do it. You're really going to do this thing. You're really going to practice. You're going to get involved. You're going to do it. And that's when then the struggle starts, because you really do it, and so it's not idea anymore, it's not fancy poem anymore. You really do it with your whole body and mind. And actually, it's a big struggle. It's very difficult, because to sit down, to watch the breath, to ask a question, whatever you do, this is not easy. Because in a way, we have cultivated certain habits for 20, 30 years, and they're not going to dissipate overnight. This is a thing. So in a way, what we kind of, we want to do this, we do it, and then we meet our patterns, kind of, you know. And I think this, is, this picture is where, in a way, there is the most power, the most energy. And I know for myself, this happened when I went to Korea. After three days, I decided to become a nun just for a year or two, to try it out. Why not? Uh, and then I, I uh, kind of entered the meditation hall, and I had to sit 11 hours a day. I had to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning. I had to sit 50 minutes at a time, 5-0, walking 10 minutes, 50 minutes again, breakfast, then three more of it, lunch, four more of it, then kind of light dinner, and then two more of it. And I had never said before that for more than 20 minutes, once or twice. <laughs> and it was excruciating. I f finally, I moved my, uh, because they faced the wall. It was summer, so I moved my cushion in front of the door, which was open, so I could look out. <laughs> so we kind of, and I had pain everywhere, and I could not breathe, and I could, it was really tough. So I would do the first sitting, and then I would go to do something so much more beneficial. I would help in the kitchen, I would learn Korean, I would, you know, good occupation. You know, then, you know this meditation really is not working. And then I would come back for the first sitting of the next period, and so This went on for a month. And then Master Kuzan came to sit with us, because sometimes he sat with us like that. So he came, and so I saw him, oh, you know, I have to sit, you know, so I'm sad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What is this? What is this? Yeah. <laughs> 
then I did the first sitting, and then it was too much. I mean, if he wanted to stay, he could. I was going. <laughs> so I went off. And he noticed it, because we were just a small meditation hall. There were three meditation halls. We were the smallest. So he, he noticed it. And when I came back for the next session, the leader of the hall had the dictionary in hand. <laughs> and he said, Master Kuzan said, and I always remembered, he said, Okchiro Chamta. So we both looked in the dictionary. What did it mean? And it meant to bear beyond strength. And so he said, to bear beyond strength. And I thought, ah. <laughs> if he said I must bear beyond strength, maybe I should. Then I thought, you know, they've been doing this for 1,200 years and possibly nobody died of it, you know. <laughs> maybe I could give it to go. And so I did. I did not miss anymore anything. And within a month, I was the first one to arrive. And it was fine. And to me, it was very important because this picture is about when our comfort zone is pushed. Because we generally want to do what we want to do. And we want, especially in the West, we want to have it a little easy. And so Master Kuzan was telling me, you can do more than that. You really can do it. And so that, in a way, I would say was a turning point in my practice to kind of to really decide, okay, I am really going to do this. And then comes the next picture, which is called ride, no, which is called tending the ox. So you see the picture there. So the, the ox, they're walking together, and then the rope, notice the rope. The rope is still attached, but it's very loose. So the ox herder is holding the ox very loosely. And this is when, in a way, the, the practice becomes familiar. We start to know what to do. We don't have to be told what to do. And in a way, we don't struggle anymore. We just have to apply ourselves. We really just have to do it. And I remember once I used to, we used to sit 10 hours a day for three months. And then we used to have a three-month free period where we just sat four hours a day and where we could also go and visit various temples. And so every free season, I used to visit a great master called Master Kyongbong. And so I used to take a bath, two or three baths, and I used to kind of walk for an hour, and I would get to this beautiful little temple, and then the master would be there. And then this time I arrive and then I bow to Master Kyongbong and I said, Master, Master, how can I keep my question, what is this, vivid and bright? And he sits there. He sits there. Master? <laughs> and then he says to me, you know what you have to do. <laughs> and this was it. So I bowed, I came out, and I felt a little short-changed. <laughs> I came all this way, and I only got four words. <laughs> so, hmm. And then suddenly, I thought, no, this is a great gift. Because, truly, I know what I have to do. I know what I do. This is a gift of faith. This is a gift of confidence. Because, truly, I know what I have to do to make the question vivid. The only thing I have to do is to do it. I know what to do. I just have to do it. So I think this stage is just when we actually know what to do. But... The, the rope is still there, and it's loose, but still there, because we still have to keep an eye. We still have to be vigilant at that time. Because sometimes we can get, I think at that stage, we kind of know how to sit, and we can do it. And you kind of, I know for myself, I became a little arrogant, you know. Like we would have, every two weeks, we would have kind of a day 
off. We would just sit four hours, two in the morning, two in the evening. Daytime, we could wash, and then we afternoon, we would go for a walk together. And because in Korea, because you sit for three months, you can talk a little. And, you know, I remember myself once, you know, on such a day, afternoon, everybody goes, all the Westerners go for a walk, and they come knock at my door. You want to come? Oh, I am sitting. <laughs> I am not going. And it's funny because I think we have really to be careful with this. How It's funny. I mean, the practice is about losing the self. But sometimes you have a feeling the self is really there. Or some other time, you have the, the time where really nothing works. I think this is also the, this is why we have to keep an eye to be vigilant. Because you think everything goes well, you know what to do. And suddenly, it's kind of like, Hitting a wall. Nothing works. And once I was on a three-month retreat in Korea, and in the middle of it, and really I tried hard. I was sitting 16 hours a day. I was really kind of dedicated, keen, everything. And suddenly nothing worked. For two weeks, I would try this, that. I would be sleepy. I would be distracted. I could not raise a question. And I would sit and sit and sit, and nothing would happen. Nothing would work. For two weeks... And then there was a tape of a great master, and he said something, and then poof, it totally turned. And then the question actually did itself, came by itself. So I think that's what the stage is about, to kind of, you know what to do, but you still have to be a little careful about various points there. And then there is a sixth picture, which is called Riding the Ox Back Home. And this is a lovely picture because there is no rope anymore, and he's sitting on top of the ox, and the little oxider is playing the flute. So you know, it's, a, it's a picture of, I would say, great ease, lightness, and also joy and creativity. And to me, this is something that I noticed in Korea, is that often at the beginning, you had the, the young monks, and now they're so serious, you know, enlightenment, yeah, yeah. And then you see the monks and nuns who had practiced for 20, 30, 40 years, and there was a lightness about them. I mean, I, once I knew nuns, they'd been on a, they were doing a three years retreat in silence. But during the free season, you could visit them. And so I used to go to them, and they were in silence. And it was like the pure land. And we used to laugh, you know, and we did not talk. But we, I was so beautiful. And so it's kind of when you practice, after a while, there is this lightness, there is this ease. And also I think within the practice, we kind of start to feel, to arise, this creativity. This creativity even in terms of what I would call expressing ourselves. That actually we open up, so there is less blockage, and then we can in a way start to create. We might do painting, poems, whatever it is. And we don't do it to compete or to achieve a great masterpiece, but just to create something. And I remember when I was in England one day, it was a little in, in the winter, and I felt a little kind of gloomy. There was kind of a little heaviness. And I felt I needed to create. I needed to do something that kind of would create something that had not existed before. And so I look up what they had in adult education classes, and they had woodwork. I thought, oh, I could do this. So I go for this kind of 10-week session of woodworking. And the first two sessions were terrible. I came back, I had pain in the back everywhere. It was terrible. And then I kind of brought the meditation to it, and kind of it was better with the body. And then I kind of sculpted over this time an owl. It was not the most beautiful owl in the universe. <laughs> At the end of the 10 weeks, I felt this something that had not been there before, some aliveness. And I think part of the meditation process is this openness we can start, in a way, to develop this creativity in whatever way we might. So it's a, it's a place where we are, there is more fluidity. And also, I would say, when we do meditation for its own sake, without except expectation. That's why, in a way, the ox knows where to go. There is no, it, kind of, it's fluid, 
And it's kind of just that ease. And then there is a seventh picture. And then it's called forgetting the ox. The persons rest alone. So you have a little, the little guy sitting by a little house looking at the moon. And so you think all this trouble to look for the ox, catch the ox, and now it's gone. Because in a way, I think there is a stage where there is no separation between meditation and daily life, between spiritual and non-spiritual. I think it kind of becomes something we do naturally, something we kind of naturally aware, naturally wakeful, that actually we, we bring the meditation to each moment in our life. So when we're bringing the meditation, for example, for myself, playing domino with my grandmother, that was being, in a way, meditative with her. Or when I do drawing with my niece, my niece comes to stay with my mother, then she spent most of her time with us upstairs. And one of the things we do together is we paint, we draw. So we each have our little corner. She has a corner, my corner, and I have to paint too. She's not going to do it on her own. So she does a thing, and I do my painting, and sometimes she looks at my painting, ooh, it's a nice one. Eh? You know, and, she kind of, and in a way, that too is meditation, just to be with her and then to kind of be creative in my own way, and she's creative in her own way. So in a way, kind of you know, being together in that way. Or doing gardening, kind of you know, the way you garden. Or the way you sit at the computer, the way you work. I mean, anything at that level becomes meditation. And I would say the one thing where I find it the most difficult to meditate is watching TV. <laughs> that is nearly impossible. Because when my grandma was alive, she, she used to like me to come down when she was too tired to play domino. Then we would just sit together watching TV. So we watched TV, and for her, it did not mean much. She was just looking at the kind of image moving, and the kind of, she couldn't really hear or understand what they said, but just seeing them kind of do things. And she said, oh, look, he does this. Oh, look, you know. And so, and I would sit there, and it, I could see how I kind of, within five minutes, I was in the story. I was caught up, you know. And if I liked it, I continued. If I did not like it, I changed the channel. And <laughs> So I would say, you know, this is, if you can watch TV and meditate, this is a proof your meditation is going very well. <laughs> then there is a next one, which is the ox and the ox herder are both forgotten. And so then you just have a circle. So we have to be careful that we don't become literally a circle. But I think this is very much about this moment. We have been talking a lot about this moment of letting go of our grip. It's when we kind of, in a way, experience this kind of, I would say, soft, peaceful, and open meditative state. Or when we have insight, which is something we did not see before. And we start to, start to experience, in a way, the emptiness. When we kind of start to dissolve this I, me, mine. And experience ourselves more as a flow of condition. There is more spaciousness, there is more choices, there is more movement, there is more fluidity. Again, we kind of deepen that. And kind of, we feel more, I would say, more spacious within ourselves, within our outer condition and within our, our inner condition. But we have to be careful that actually we don't stop there. And when I was in Korea, uh, once there was these three monks who decided they were really, really going to practice really hard, which meant they went to the hermitage, an hour walk away, and they sat in a little hermitage together, and they sat all day and all night. This was hard practice. You know, they're really kind of into it sometime. And so they do this, and then suddenly in the middle of the retreat, and we were low and down doing our 10 hours, one of them has this amazing experience of emptiness. So he runs down the mountain and he goes to Master Cousin. Master Cousin, ah, I have had an experience. Everything is empty. And so Master Cousin takes his big stick. He hits him on the shoulder. <laughs> the guy says, ah, 
And he said, well, you see, not everything is empty. <laughs> so he does not, uh, he thinks that's not good enough, so he goes to the next big master, Master Kyongbang, the one I used to visit, and he said to him, everything is empty. And the guy hits him, same result. <laughs> so he's still not convinced because his experience was so amazing. So he goes to the third master, who was kind of the, great, the three great master of those times, and the same thing happened. So then he comes back and continues to practice. Because in a way, emptiness, the emptiness state is not the end of the path. Because we still have two more pictures. And the next pictures is called returning to the original place. And you can see, sometimes it is a willow tree, sometimes it is a bamboo, sometimes it's some cherry blossom. But generally it's a depiction of nature that actually we must go one stage further from emptiness to back to life, to interdependence, to interconnection. That actually the, 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 true, the, the thing of emptiness is the fact that everything is connected to everything else. Everything is dependent on everything else in a way. If we just look at ourselves, if I look at my body, I my being, at my life, I do not sustain, I am not self-sustaining. My survival depends on everything outside of myself. What I eat, what I drink, the air I breathe, the clothes I wear, the medicine I take, the house I live in, everything I use, everything that sustains me actually comes from the outside. So in a way, I'm totally dependent on the world from my survival. And I think that's what this picture is about, to realize how we're not separate, but that we are connected through the air, through everything we do, also through the word we say, through our action to the world. So it's kind of, in a way, coming back from emptiness, coming back to the world, to feeling this connection. And also in terms of nature, my teacher used to say, everything can give you a Dharma discourse. He would say the bird is giving a Dharma discourse. The flowers are giving a Dharma discourse. And I would say personally, yesterday, the gopher was giving me a Dharma discourse. Have you noticed the gopher? There is a little gopher by the dining hall. And he comes out. <laughs> and you can see who he wants to come out, but he's not sure if he can. <laughs> you know, he kind of munch, munch, come back. Mm, it's very interesting to observe it. I mean, such a great Daimar discourse in that little gopher there. And then there is a last picture. And the last picture, I'm sorry, it's kind of twisted a little in my thinking there. It's called Appearing in the Marketplace with Gifts. And so here you have this kind of big fat fellow who appears, appearing in the marketplace. And you have this fat fellow who is there, who is kind of this kind of, kind of you know, kind of a little funky looking, with a big bag, and the little ox herder reappears. Because in a way, now, they're going to go back into the world and they're going to, in a way, interact with the world. They're going to connect with the world. They're going to give to the world. So in a way, all what they've learned, all their journey, is not in a way an end in itself, but it's so that they can go back to the world. And the thing is that, in a way, you go back with gift, but which means that there is this activity, there is this responsiveness, but also there is a skillful and the appropriateness. Because I think this is about compassion, but this is also about wisdom, about skillful activity. And I think we have to really learn there, when sometimes, what to say, how to say it. This is what was one of my first experiences, when when I was just recently back to Europe in England, 
And a woman wanted to talk to me and ask me my advice. She said, I am in love with somebody else. I hate my husband. I can't get on with him. I have two children. I want to live, go and live with my lover, which is very far away. What do you suggest? <laughs> so me being somebody who has read lots of things about you know, family, social things, da-da-da-da, I said, well, I think it would be nice if you went back and could live with your husband to be with your children, you know, and to kind of try to kind of... Basically, that was my message, though I kind of put a little spirituality and things in there. <laughs> so off she goes. She comes back three months later, and I said, what happened? She said, I came back, lasted five days, hated it, left the children with the husband, and went with the lover. And that's when I realized that actually you cannot tell people what to do. (laughs) You have to listen. You can suggest, but you really have to come back, not from some theories about things, but where are they at? That to me was a great lesson about what was skillful, what was appropriate. And at the same time, there is very much in this image, that's why he's a little funky, the kind of the little fat person, of being able to adapt to high and low. That actually it's a picture which is, you do not discriminate in your wisdom, in your compassion. You really, in a way, try to adapt your compassion to the circumstances and not to, in a way, be picky and choosy with your compassion. And I remember when I was doing some research in Thailand, I heard about this nun who was doing lots of very interesting social projects. She had a a school for uh, disabled children. She also, in her uh, temple and meditation center, she had a little corner for unmarried uh, mothers. And so I was asking her, you know, about all the activities she did. And then, I mean, and she was beautiful. She was all in white. And she was so pure looking. She looked like she was floating on the ground. She was amazing. And so we are talking. He said, oh, yes. And then I also, you know, help Thai boxers. I said, Thai boxers? (laughs) This is fairly violent, Thai boxing. You know, they kind of really kick. I mean, everything goes in Thai boxing. I said, Thai boxers? And say, yeah, I mean, Thai boxers too need some spiritual support. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> and uh, and I, really was, I really was inspired by that. I was really inspired by that. And then there was another, that was last year this happened, and I was so moved by that. This was in Korea. I went to a conference on uh, international Buddhist women. And this being Korea and the nun had arranged it, it was I mean, fantastic. I mean, they're really amazing, the Korean Buddhist nun. And so in the evening, of course, we had to have some entertainment. You know, this is Korea. Mm-hmm. And uh, so one evening, what we have is this nun, 50s, 60s nun, was this choir of 10 nuns, and they sing some uh, songs some kind of semi-Buddhist kind of folk song. But as they sing it, they also do it in sign language. And it is really beautiful. And then at the end of it, the nun, the older nun said, you know, there is also people who are deaf. And we must also be there for deaf people. And she gave a huge speech. Because actually in Korea, in the, in the culture, if you are disabled, you generally don't, people don't really look at them. It's like kind of like they're impaired. Like it's kind of, there is a weird kind of connection. Now it's changing. But, and so she was saying, she was trying to say that there are these people too out there. And they are part of the work of the Bodhisattva. You cannot pick and choose who you want to be compassionate to. You really must open to everybody. And for me, this picture is very much about that, that you kind of, in a way, adapt to whatever. You kind of, in a way, there is a curiosity in the compassion. There is an openness in the compassion. And so, 
to finish with, I would just like to point out that these, these pictures, these 10 pictures, they are not linear. Don't think of them as I go step one, step two, and then I get to step 10. For me, they are more like a spiral. That actually, we go up this spiral, but we time to time come back to the same place. So, you know, we, we might go through the 10 picture, and then sometime we might come back to feeling something is missing. And actually, we might want to add something to our practice. Or we might come back to a moment where we feel a little kind of it's struggling. Or we might come back to a, a place of great ease. So I think it's very important to not see them as linear, but really more as a process, as a kind of a spiral in which we kind of time to time go through the various stages. So that's what I want to say today. Are there any questions? Yeah? No, I mean, this, I mean, I always try to relate from my experience, from what I know. But personally, no, I don't think you have to sit 10 hours a day, 10 years to get anywhere. This is not what this is about, you know. I think, in a way, to me, what is very inspiring when I teach retreat is to see people who come and tell me, you know, they do seven days and they go home. And they will tell me, and I'm different with my daughter. Instead of straight away arguing, I kind of, kind of, there is a little space and I can try to consider a little differently and kind of try to be more creative with her. So I don't think you need to, you know, I think possibly, you know, I'm a kind of a tough case. I needed to sit a lot <laughs> <laughs> to kind of, you know, for it. But to me, the te- the, the, I see the 10 years in Korea more as a basis, you know, more like a training. And the, my now, I, my, uh, I left in 85, so yeah, now my 20 years as a lay person, I see as putting into practice what I trained. I really, I mean, to me, that's what was so interesting, because stopping being a nun, I was so interesting. I was, now I was ordinary. I was such a shock, you know. Nobody looked at me. <laughs> you know, I was invisible. It was so weird. It was very interesting, you know, to kind of come back down to earth a bit. And it really was a great kind of practice to really try to, to really bring this into the daily life. This was a challenge. I think at one level, being a nun is relatively easy. People think of it as very difficult. I don't think it's very difficult. I think it's much harder to be in lay life. You know, I think in lay life, you, you, you know, you are kind of challenged all the time. So I think that too, if you bring the practice to your lay life, I think actually you can also achieve, achieve great things. So I don't think it's a question of how many t- how long you sit of the, on, on the cushion, but it's very much a question of intention. To me, this is intention, which is very important. And maybe I'll tell you two more stories. Can I? Short one. About that, because you you will see. You see, what is interesting in Korea is that not everybody does this 10 hours a day. There is only kind of actually, on 10,000 monks and nuns, you might only have a tenth who do the 10 hours a day. So it's kind of like one of the specialization you can have. You're not obliged to do that. So you have uh, this nun, become a nun, to save everybody, so as to practice hard, awaken, and save everybody. So she kind of, you know, goes through first the college, and then she goes and starts meditating. And, you know, sitting, meditation, 10 hours a day. And then she sits there. She thinks, if the people have to wait for me to awaken, for me to help them, they might have to wait a long time. <laughs> so she decides actually to do something different. She decided to kind of actually get more into social work and create kind of a, 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 a passion is helping all people. So she create a, a, for a whole people's home. And then to do the practice together with that. And to me, I think this is very inspiring. You know, to kind of somebody, I mean, some people, of course, go all the way to awakening and then help others. But I think it's also good to do it right here, right now, as you practice, to do it together. 
Also, there is this other nun I met. And it was the same. She became a nun to practice hard, to you know, awaken and save everybody. This is kind of generally the idea. <laughs> and so she kind of, you know, do her, um, she do her uh, study. And in the middle of the study, she studied the Avatamsaka Sutta, in which it says, all sentient beings are Buddhas, and all Buddhas are sentient beings. And she thinks, wow, yeah, I am a Buddha. And then she dropped, she dropped you know, fantasizing about sitting in a hermitage in the mountain. And she decided to continue to study the Avatamsaka Sutta. And then she becomes a professor of that. And then I asked her, but what is your practice? And she said, my practice is to be a Buddha. <laughs> so in the morning, she gets up, she does her thing. And then as she goes out of the temple, she has the intention to have the wisdom and the compassion of the Buddha today. And that's her practice. And then at the end of the day, she review how much Buddha-like was I, how much sentient being-like was I. <laughs> and she learned from that. And she starts again. No sitting? No sitting? Just a little in the morning, I think about maybe, yeah, maybe 50 minutes every morning. Or maybe, I mean, maybe, you know, maybe 50 minute morning, 50 minute evening, something like that. Yeah? Martina, I've heard of different interpretations for the ox, but what is the ox metaphor for? I think it's an unruly mind. I think that it's an unruly mind, yeah. I think so. Traditionally, that's the way it would be seen. And then at the back, Brooke? What made you leave in 10 years? Huh? What made you leave being a nun in 10 years? What was that process? Uh, okay. I decided to become a nun over three days. I decided to stop being a nun over three hours. <laughs> it doesn't take me long to make decisions. <laughs> and um, two things happened. The first thing that happened is Master Kuzan died. And when Master Kuzan died, after I was there nine years, it was, it was such a big hole in the monastery. It was like, it was very, yeah, it was a let's say a little traumatic. And, um, and so I was asked to stay nine more months to help out with the Westerner. And then the new master came. It was not the same. And then I fell in love with Stephen. <laughs> so then I thought we could not reconcile the two things together. So then we disrobed and then went. But the two, the two things together. I don't know what I would have done if Master Cousin had not died. I don't know. Uh, yeah. You mentioned something about the women in Thailand, and that's why you didn't stay there, but I didn't understand what it was about Thailand. Okay, this was before I knew anything about Buddhism. I was 22. I was a former anarchist and feminist. We have to see the conditions. And when I was in Thailand, in the very good temple, I was at what, um, where Buddha Dasa was, which a great, great master who since had died. I was at Wat Swan Mok in the south of Thailand. He was a great master. I go there. I mean, I don't know anything out of anything. I go there, and, and somebody say, oh, this monk will talk to you. So we sit on his bench. I sit there. And he said, why did you come? And I said, I want to learn to meditate. And he said, oh, you can't learn that here. And I said, oh, really? And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was about really want to. And he said, okay, you can stay around, sweep a bit, you can stay. And it was him, Acham Buddha Dasa, wow. the great man. Wow. <laughs> anyway, so I stay, and I am told, so many different, I'm told that if a monk comes on the path, if he's on the left of the path, I must go on the right of the path. I am told that if there is a Western monk, if I want to go and see the Western monk, I cannot go there with just by myself. But I cannot go there with just another woman. I cannot go there just with one man. I have to go there with 
one woman and one man, and that should be okay. <laughs> so, and also in the hall, at once one mark, you have this huge three-meter-high picture of a dome dress, you know, kind of like a, a circus, like a circus girl who kind of uh, takes care of horses, you know, with the little frilly things and the kind of naked, you know, and the kind of the... Uh. So anyway, <laughs> although they were very nice, very friendly, they were really very nice to me, I thought this is a bit too weird for me in terms of being an anarchist and feminist. But that's why, that's why. Uh, yeah, okay there. I have a question about Korean Zen, Zen in general, about where's the heart in it? Because I know when I was your age, when you started, I started too. And I decided I was going to go to Japan to be going to a Zen monastery. And I said, okay, well, first maybe I'll try it here. So I went to a Zen monastery here. And for two years, you know, sat there and the sweat poured down I would go to wipe it off and the monks would come by and clap by me. It was really sort of traumatic. And, and so I didn't go to Japan and I didn't continue with Zen because also the more I read, sort of the more I got confused, but, but looking back on it, I couldn't find compassion practice. I couldn't find what I needed to connect with heart practice. And I still don't see it. I'm wondering what your experience was in Korea. Yeah, I cannot speak for Japan because it's a very different culture and it's what I would call more samurai style. So it's a little militaristic and very formal. This, and so it's a very different culture and I think one has to have a different temperament. For some people it's very good, but possibly it's not for everybody. In Korea, you see, if you go to Japan, you have to be 150% Japanese. In Korea, you just need to be 70% Korean to fit. It's a very, they, they're kind of like the Italian of the East. They, they, they're, very, they're very different, actually, from the Chinese and the Japanese. And in Korea, I know the, 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 the heart. You see, we, we sit three months, but actually we can talk to each other. So, I mean, you sit 10 hours a day, you sleep six hours. When you eat, don't, you don't talk. But, you know, you can talk a little which actually makes for a much more convivial atmosphere. So you can also get into trouble in argument and things like this, which actually make it more daily life, so to speak. Also in Korea, because you see, you don't have that in Japan. In Korea, every, at least once every two weeks or once a month, you recite the Bodhisattva precept. And this I recently translated. It's out uh, in the bookshop, if I can plug it. <laughs> And the Bodhisattva precept, why did I translate them? Because, you see, I would sit there, and at the beginning, I did not understand them. I had no idea what they were saying. And then over time, as my Korean got better, I could understand. And I could see that what people did, depended, was influenced by the Bodhisattva precept. There are 58 of them. And, I mean, some of them are weird, but a lot of them are beautiful, really beautiful. And so... I could see that some of the things Master Kuzan did was because of the precept. And one of them was with animals. Whenever he met an animal, he would kind of pat it and say something. And I kind of thought, what is he doing? You know? And then finally, I realized it was what you, one of the precepts is that when you see any creature, you actually, sotto voce, you wish for them to attain enlightenment. And that's what you do. You kind of say it. So you're kind of conscious there that, you know, everybody has that possibility. And in it, there is, you know, res uh, kind of take care of the sick, rescue people in difficulty, uh, do not be angry, uh, forgive. I mean, one of the very interesting ones in Korea was forgive. Forgive someone who asks for repentance. And there was this thing in Korea, which I was, and actually this comes from the Buddha, but it was always amazed me that if you made a mistake, however bad it was, really bad, really bad mistake, 
the only thing you had to do was to go and bow three times and say, I made a mistake. And then this was it. Never, ever, ever to be talked about. Because us, when we forgive, we forgive, but we don't forget. You know? There it was amazed. I was amazed again and again. And that was not my experience in Korea. That actually, Master Cousin, every, talked a lot about compassion. And you could see him. I mean, he was very compassionate. He... Yeah, and lots of people I met were very compassionate. So it was, it's a very different atmosphere. But again, you have, again, there is different style. There is different family. Our family was a slightly different Zen style. Because our family was a sudden gradual style. Because most Zen is sudden, sudden style. So it's sudden awakening, sudden practice. And that makes for a very different atmosphere. When in our family, coming from Chinul, a master of the 12th century, he says you have sudden awakening, which is followed by gradual practice. And also there is a great emphasis on the ethics in our family, which, but ethics founded on compassion. So I would say in Korea, this was not my experience. And I sat with the nuns, and it was not really my experience. Uh, yes? Can you comment on any differences between meditating with your eyes open and your eyes closed? Yes, I, this is kind of the, one of the bugbear of the chestnut of the meditation world, Buddhist meditation world. Because somebody will tell you, you must close your eyes, otherwise no awakening is possible, or no concentration is possible. Then you have the Zenis who say, if you close your eyes, this is all macchio, this is all delusion, you know, you must have your eyes half open. And then you have the Dzogchen, people who tell you you must have them wide open. <laughs> and of course, everybody thinks, you know, they have the best idea. Personally, I think it's, it's according to temperament and to condition. I think you can close your eyes as long as you are not of a sleepy type. You know, if you have a sleepy temperament and you close your eyes, I mean, you become so dull so fast. So I think it's a question of temperament. You know, some people, it might be more useful to close the eyes. But if you close the eyes, you have to be very careful that you don't start to space out on the little red thing you see <laughs> because of the closing of the eyelid. I think sometimes people kind of, kind of space out on that. So I think it's kind of temperament. Personally, I kind of have my eyes faintly closed or half closed to just keep a little light so they kind of, I don't fall asleep. That's kind of, for me, what seems to help me. But I think it's very much kind of depends on people. And I would say if you feel dull, open the eyes wide. If you don't feel dull by nature, you can close your eyes. If you're a little kind of restless, agitated, you might want to close your eyes. I think it very much depends on the person and also on the practice you do. Because some practice you're told, close your eyes, some not. So personally, I would say, try it out. Experiment for yourself. How does it work? If you have the eyes open, the only thing I would say is don't fix. Don't fix. Just gaze very gently. And if you close your eyes, close them again very gently. But yeah, I don't have a, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, when you, when you have the eyes half open Zen style, what we were told, you see, I think, again, there is two different styles in the Zen tradition. One is actually to face the wall. So actually you open your eyes and you look at the wall. When actually in my tradition, we actually did not sit. We sat facing the wall before. We had the, the cushion in the middle of the room. So we were facing the wall but not next to it. And what we were told is to kind of gaze about that much in front of us, to gaze very gently. But I think in the doctrine tradition, it seems that you have to look up and to kind of look widely. I think that's what they say, but I'm not a specialist. And Tibetan, too. Some, I know some other Buddhism. Yeah, that's a Dzogchen. Dzogchen is Tibetan tradition. Okay. It's one of the 
school there. Uh, yes? Yes, yes. So what we do in Korea, it's, a, it's what I presented. I don't know how you did with it. So what is this? That, that's, that's what we do in Korea. What is this? And, but the, the way they do it in Korea is a little different from the way they do it in Japan. Because in Japan, you had Master Hakuin in the 16th century. There was a kind of a little, the, the Rinzai school, which had koan. Uh, went down a bit, was kind of a little kind of uh, dull, kind of was not kind of very, very kind of lively. And so he created this series of koans and even created the koan, what is the sound of one hand clapping, that's him. And these kind of se- going through a series of koans, this is very Japanese. In the Chinese and Korean tradition, you generally keep one koan for your whole life. And that's generally what we do in Korea. Though, again, there are certain families who do it a little more Japanese style or kind of a little different style. But in our family style, it was more like kind of a a little like the Chinese way, which was you just have one question, uh, one koan, and you keep it for your whole life. So at that level, it's a little kind of different a little. I mean, there is kind of faint little technical difference. Yeah? Well, the thing is that you have to see it in the context. If, I, if, I, if, if this quote is correct to what I think, it comes from Master Huineng. And Master Huineng has a quote saying that not thinking, I mean, it's kind of wu nian, no thought is actually thinking f- free from attachment. It kind of, there is a quote on that. I could try to find it for you. And so what I think for me, Master Winning says, is not thinking, is not having no thought, but is actually thinking in a different way. So basically he says it's thinking free from attachment. So that you think, your, your, your mind is thinking, is not blank, but your mind does not grasp anywhere. Because he says it is... It kind of it goes everywhere. It kind of doesn't stick anywhere, and it all pervades everywhere. So it's kind of a mind which is not kind of stuck, not limited. Uh, yes, and I think, yeah. Why is it that if you go to a sashin, there'll be incense burning? If you go to a vipassana retreat, there's all kinds of injunctions about no smells. <laughs> <laughs> I think. I think, uh, uh, big, I mean, incense is very traditional offering because it's a symbol of selflessness because the incense kind of dissolves itself as it spreads its fragrance. So it's this idea that awakening is about selflessness and also spreading without discrimination. But the thing, personally, you see, I mean, I was a nun for 10 years and I'm allergic to incense, you know. <laughs> So that's why, personally, I would not have any incense here because it's, I mean, I would cough all the time. And I think in terms of the Vipassana, it's because some people are uh, chemical sensitive. And that's the reason for this. Uh, so it's just common sense. It isn't any... No. There's nothing no. in the tradition. No, no, no. When the Theravada monks are here, they burn lots of incense. Yes, yes, yes. No, no, it's, it's this, I think, is more uh, American uh, sensitivity to kind of be... Uh, no, no, not... To be sensitive to the illness of people. Okay, I think, uh, yeah, but that's the last one. Okay. Uh, I'm interested in the difference between number seven and number ten. And the way we, in number seven, bring meditation into our daily life, mm-hmm. it still seems to be in a very quiet way mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. not relational, I mean, we're not that active, mm-hmm. at least that image. Yeah. That. yeah, yeah, I think it, 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 it is kind of like when we, we, we kind of stop the division between spiritual and non-spiritual, but in a way, we, it's not the total kind of being able to be totally compassionate because you've gone beyond the self and all that. 
And so then it's not total re-engagement yet. Yes, I think, I think this is an idea, yeah. Yeah, that it's kind of more, in a way, going into the dimension of oneself as a kind of like the person, becoming the person Stephen talking about, was talking about. And then after that, in a way, you must become a person yourself to be able to meet other person. I think there is a little of that there. Good, I think our time is up. Thank you very much. This talk was given by Martine Bachelor at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on October 27, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.